This is a Rooster Teeth production. In today's episode, we're talking about Utah's infamous Nutty Putty Cave and what happens when spelunking or cave diving goes wrong. Plus, we learn about the existential slap and what it means to come to terms with your own mortality. Welcome to 30 Morbid Minutes. This is the podcast where we cover topics of a morbid, macabre, dark, and downright grisly nature. Yes, we talk about scary, creepy, and weird stuff, but it's also an exploration of human history and nature. I'm Elise Willems. I'm Jessica Vasami. So far on this podcast, Jess and I have taken a deep dive into the Victorian obsession with death and superstition. We've studied the science behind sleep paralysis demons. We learned about the fallen hikers of Mount Everest and the hundreds of human remains still scattered across the mountain. Covered the history of grave robbing and body snatching and how it still happens today. Discussed the tradition of giving death row inmates last meals and investigated the rules and practices behind it. Explored the origins of spirit boards and the dark history and evolution of the Ouija board and how I will continue to not play with it. (laughs) We set sail for death, specifically on cruise ships where we met Operation Rising Star. (laughs) That's me. (laughs) That's you. (laughs) Stepped into the light talking about the science of and religious explanations for near-death experiences. Today we're doing something special. And we're covering two topics in one episode, bringing you twice and double the morbid facts. And making a little bit of a game of it, too, as Elise and I try to out-morbid one another. (laughs) And I don't know if this will pay off because we're going into this sight unseen. We don't know what the other person is bringing to the table here. I think we both know that you're going to come with the most morbid facts. I don't know. I think you are. Mine is definitely a very depressing and bleak story. My story is definitely morbid, for sure. Something I actually didn't know about, you you might already know about it. Oh God, I'm so excited. Oh man, I just hope you don't know it because you know all the morbid things. I don't know. I I think you're going to know aspects of what I'm talking about, but maybe not this specific story. So, okay. I think I will kick it off then. Okay. Yes, you go first. Okay. And again, we probably shouldn't get too excited because this is very dark and real people are affected in my story. Totally. Same. I'm going to turn my smile off. Yeah. Turn the smiles off. Okay. So I guess my first question for you, Jess, is how much you know about the act in the sport of spelunking or caving? I don't know a lot about it. It's very interesting to me, though. Yeah. Like, you know what it is, I imagine, which is a Mm -hmm. pastime that involves exploring these wild cave systems. Yeah, my curiosity is like, I would love to go and do that, but really, my bra- my bravery would not. <laughs> wow. It's going into this uncharted territory, I think, which is part of the appeal of it. My husband, he hates spelunking. It's probably his greatest fear, the idea of it. Yeah. Terrifying. Uh-huh. Because there's this idea that you can get trapped or fall into some horrendous situation and die down there. But you're also curious. You're also and curious. I am. <laughs> and but no, I would never do it. And I feel like spelunking is doing a sport, but then also you're exploring the unknown. Yes. It's cool down in those caves. Yep. But on average, there are about three to four 
cave-related, spelunking-related deaths in the U.S. per year. So it can be dangerous. And the story that I'm about to tell you, Jess, is the story of one specific cave, the infamous Nutty Putty Cave, which was once the site of recreational cave exploring, but now is a tomb. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. God, when I think of tomb, I think that there's obviously multiple bodies down there. There aren't, which I don't know if that makes it better or worse. Uh, oh, the God. idea that this is this is one person's single tomb in this. Okay, cave. so it was they're trapped. They were trapped. Yes, and that's oh, that's geez. really the the dark and sad and very tragic story that I'm about to tell you, which is of the Nutty Putty Cave, which is southwest of Utah Lake and about 55 miles from Salt Lake City. I've been to Zion National Park in Utah, which is beautiful. And it's all those exquisite rock formations and you hike the narrows and lots of really, really cool hiking there. But there is also also lots of really dangerous hiking. Yeah. So I can totally see why this would happen in a place like Utah, where you have all this kind of unique geography. Yeah. I've never been to Zion. I've always wanted to go. It's so cool. It's so cool. Almost all caves form in limestone, which is formed over a long period of time. And then it's eaten away at by acidic groundwater. And the Nutty Putty Cave is a limestone cave. But instead of water dripping from above, which is usually how caves form, it's a hypogenic cave. So the superheated water forms at the bottom in a bed and then it's forced upward by the heat and then it eats away at the rock that way. It's hydrothermal. Mm -hmm. And it was first explored in the 1960s. And it's known for its tight twists and turns, which should kind of give you an indication of where this is all going. Well, now I'm wondering, like, do you know why it's called the Nutty Putty Cave? Right? Nutty Putty? I don't know. And we can Google it. But my guess is because the actual walls of the cave are very clay-like. That's what I was, when you were talking about that, I was like, there has to be a reason why it's called this. Yeah. The walls are very, very sensitive and they're very, like I just said, clay-like. And so that actually comes into play a little bit later in the story. I also think maybe Nutty Putty, you would have to be a little bit nutty to want to go down Mm -hmm. and explore these Mm -hmm. (laughs) tight squeezes and twists Mm -hmm. and turns. Yeah. And yeah, the 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 distinctive geography of this cave is that it has all these really, really tight turns and canals and passages that then open up into bigger rooms and then back into tight squeeze and smaller rooms. So it's, it's very much like a labyrinth and very claustrophobic. Yes, I'm already starting to feel claustrophobic. Yeah. And <laughs> thousands used to visit this cave every single year. Three of the cave's tightest squeezes are called the Helmet Eater, the Scout Eater, and the Birth Canal. My God, the Birth Canal? (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And the Scout Eater is, I think, called the Scout Eater because scout troops used to go down into the cave and do these passages. And some scouts... Like what? Like like scout troops... Like Boy Scouts. Boy Scouts? Yeah. Boy Scouts went down there? Yeah, they would go down and they would... There are instances of scout troops getting stuck in places in this cave. That doesn't sound safe for like young boys. Okay. All right, keep going. And so the really tragic story today, which is also a teaching moment, because while it's fun to do this kind of extreme sporting, it is very dangerous. So we can really learn from stories like this. The tale today is about John Edward Jones, 
who loved doing cave expeditions and spelunking with his family. And near Thanksgiving in 2004, around 8 p.m., the local time in Utah, John, who was 26 at the time, and 10 other of his friends and family members decided that they were going to do a little fun bonding experience and go and explore the Nutty Putty Cave, which is already a little bit just, you know, unsettling to me because the idea of at night going in spelunking in a cave is just so scary to me. <laughs> yeah, anything at night is terrifying to me, but going into a, another darker, deeper place at night, just that's a no from me. Yeah. And personally. I guess the thinking was that they were in a big group together and it's not uncommon for people to go and explore the cave at this time of night. So, you know, and I think they had done it before, but just not in many years. And John, at this time, he was married and living in Virginia with a one-year-old daughter, and he was attending medical school there, but was home visiting for the holiday. And he'd also hadn't been splunking in a long time, but, you know, was doing this with his family. He weighed 200 pounds and was six feet tall, so he was a bigger guy. And while attempting to find that birth canal passage that we mentioned earlier, Jones took a wrong turn and ended up in an unmapped section of the cave near Ed's Push, which also a place called Push in the name that I feel like has a lot of implications too. Yeah, yeah. And so he thought he saw a larger opening on the other side and tried to squeeze headfirst through the tight spot and turn around, but then oh. became, yeah. Head for, okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm visualizing all no, of this. It's, it's all very awful and horrible and tragic and we will need a palate cleanser after it. Yeah. But John became wedged at a 70 degree angle in this spot. And his brother, Josh, was the first to find him. And Josh tried to pull at John to help him out. He grabbed at his calves, but it was no use. But then John slid down the passage even more and he became trapped even more than he was before. And his arms were kind of like pinned beneath his chest so he couldn't move at all. And he was trapped 400 feet down into the cave and about 100 feet below the Earth's surface. And so he's trapped there and he's now upside down too, because of all the maneuvering that he's done to try to get himself out. Oh my God. And as he goes deeper and deeper and he's, you know, when he tries to make these micro movements and sucking in his breath and stuff, he's getting more and more wedged. And so it took about an hour for people and equipment and supplies to get down there and to execute a rescue effort. And 137 volunteers spent 27 hours attempting to rescue John, who began to lose consciousness no. After at a certain point, because the blood started pooling in his head and there was stress put on his heart, because remember, he's upside down in this situation. Wow, this is this is, in all honesty, truly hard to listen to. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. No, as, wow. Yeah. As I was looking into it at first, I thought, oh, this is just kind of interesting. And again, it's a bit of a warning tale. Mm hmm. Absolutely. But yeah, it is very, very tragic and very sad and very hard. It's hard for me to tell you right now. But yeah, so he's upside down and he's losing consciousness because, you know, his circulatory system and heart can only take so much of this. And the rescuers, they installed this system of pulleys to try to free him. And it was 15 pulleys, you know, all structured in various ways, building this web to try to get him out. But as we talked about earlier with the name of the Nutty Putty Cave, the clay walls of the cave are not receptive to having things anchored in them. Oh, God. 
So the cave could not bear the weight or hold these pulleys effectively in. And again, you know, John is at this angle where there's so much stress being put on his body, put on his heart to pump blood to his brain. You know, when your body's right side up, gravity works the way it needs to. And then your heart doesn't shoulder that responsibility. But they tried, they tried for all this time for over a day to try to free him. And, you know, ultimately he was pronounced dead of cardiac arrest the following day. And I do think the idea of, you know, him losing consciousness, at least he at a certain point wasn't aware of what was happening to him, which is maybe the only like piece to be derived from this whole thing. Mm -hmm. But the thing that's kind of fascinating about this situation is what they did after this tragedy happened. And again, I think that this is a big warning when you do do activities like this of what can go wrong. But the fact that a week after his death, the cave was sealed is very, very interesting. The idea of, you know, officials saying this place is dangerous. There's a death here. We, it was also impossible to get him out of it. Even he, after he died, it wasn't possible to remove him from the cave. So they, the, all these people and volunteers just left him down there. They had no choice. It's, uh, yeah. it's so sad. It's so horrible. Yeah. Yeah. But there was nothing they could do. And I think that's a big part of why the cave got sealed off after. And mm -hmm. the idea of... <laughs> We can't get him out, but also we cannot let this happen again. So explosives yeah. were attached to the ceiling of the cave near John's body, and then those were blown. And then concrete was taken to the entrance of the entire cave. So the whole entrance hole was filled in. And now if you go to the cave today, to Nutty Putty, you'll find a plaque that has a dedication to John Jones and, you know, that, that concrete there. And I'm sure probably a lot of tokens and mementos and, from loved ones. But I, it is just, it's, it's so hard and it's tragic, but it is a pretty interesting example of recreation gone wrong. And now, now this cave is John's tomb, essentially. Yeah. I'm glad that they put a plaque there. I was like, there has to be something that yeah. like, geez, you know, um, where they could visit him or like in some sort of like remembrance of him other than like a, a grave, you know, so. But yeah, like, it's crazy. I feel like this, in a way, also ties into our Mount Everest episode when it comes into like... Absolutely. Yeah. Granted, you know, when he was going into the cave, I'm sure, you know, he knew that there were obviously risks involved, but um, I definitely don't think he had any probably sort of forethought to know that maybe he wouldn't be coming out where, you know, when I was thinking like of Mount Everest... I think some of those people know that there is a solid, I don't know. Do, do you think that he, like, it is this common knowledge of like, hey, yeah, you can, going into this cave, you could not come out. Whereas like Mount Everest, you're, you're going up there and you do know that you might not make it back down. No, people had gotten stuck in there, but no one had had a fatality. Nobody had gotten stuck to the point that they couldn't get out. Yeah. So I think you're absolutely hitting the nail on the head here where there's a different intention going into these two scenarios. Which makes it even so much, yeah, more crushing. It just like mm -hmm. they uh this is this is one of the out of out of everything we've covered, this one is one of the morbid. They're all everything we have covered is morbid, but for some reason, maybe it's because I'm sitting here and I'm visualizing it. Um I'm just like, wow, that gut 
punched me. Yeah, for me, it's the idea of being stuck down there for hours and hours in the agony and the worry that you might not get out. Like if you if I was spelunking and a bunch of boulders fell on me and killed me instantly. okay, Yeah. But that whole agonizing process is horrible. And (laughs) back to James, my husband, who he this is his number one fear. The episode he will not be listening to. (laughs) Um, We always talk about the movie The Descent, which (gasps) involves a bunch of hikers that they go spelunking and they eventually, spoiler, it's an old movie, encounter a monster. But James always says to me, you know, if I was spelunking and I got trapped in a cave, I would welcome the monster. I was about to say (laughs) the same exact thing and I knew he was going to say that. Me me yeah. too. He says, I would bear my throat to that monster yes. and say, end it now. Because for him, the greater fear is I'm stuck down here. I have nothing to help me. I'm going to die down here. Yep. And there's another, there's a video game called Until Dawn, which is also, it's about 10 years old. So sorry mm-hmm. for the spoilers, mm-hmm. but these two young girls get trapped inside a cave and then one of them resorts to cannibalism. And it it's that to me is the I mean, this is obviously super tragic, but God. Yeah. Wait, how many people were trapped that and then resorted to cannibalism? Oh, it was these two two sisters get trapped into but I think one of them died falling into the cave. So she okay. the other one ate her sister's corpse. You know, as you do. Woo! Good morning, Elise. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, it's way too early. Good morning. But yeah, the, John's story is horribly tragic, and I'm glad that he's m- at least memorialized there. Absolutely. And like you said, it is a warning tale for activities like this and for those that like to, you know, take these type of risks. It's just kind of like a, hey, this can happen to you, to anybody. Let's just make sure we're careful. I don't know. Like, I'm sure they took all the necessary precautions, but you know, we're dealing with earth and mother nature. And we, as we all know, we are no, uh, can't stand up to her. Nope. (laughs) That was a heavy topic, Jess. Thank you for bearing with it. Does it impact any of your decisions to go spelunking in the future? Well, yes. That's not something I would have done to begin with. You know, when I see it on videos and on TV and like, I'm like, oh, that'd be really cool. As as my curiosity brain would love to just like go explore. But me, like I said earlier, like I am not brave enough, courageous enough uh, to be able to go through that. I actually just saw a video, I think it was on TikTok the other day, and it's it's been, it's pretty viral. It's been going around where these group of, um, I believe there's splunkers, that there was a tiny, tiny hole in the ground. It looks like they're just on top of the ground from this video. There is a tiny hole. I'm not kidding. It's big enough for maybe somebody your size, Elise. Um, I don't think I would have fit in it. And she puts her entire body in there and she's wearing a helmet, you know, with a little light on top. Have you seen this video? No. Well, I'll send it to you. And then maybe we can share it on the, um, the, the, our Twitter as well. The socials. Are the socials, yeah. Um, but so she gets her entire body into it. She eventually has to like wiggle her butt down because, you know, that's that's a bigger part on people. And then finally, since she has her helmet on, she has to take her helmet off in order to get her head through it. And then no. finally, yeah, finally she goes down. She gets down, they give her her helmet and you look down, the camera looks down and there's like two other people down there. And I immediately was like, oh, Hell no. First off, how no. are you getting back out? Like maybe they knew of another area, but um, 
I, I, I'm going to send it to you. It was terrifying just going through that hole. And I've never really thought of myself as a claustrophobic person. Um, but there are moments where all of a sudden I just start panicking and I'm like, no, I, I can be for sure. Do you know what I would see when I got down there and saw those two other people? What? Dinner. That's all I would see. Though so I'm going to eat those two because we're going to get stuck down here and that's what's going down. So did you so you're going down into the hole already knowing that you're going to get stuck, already knowing what you're having for dinner? I would have to assume that this is OK. The end that well, I'm hey, going to at meet. least at least you're going down prepared. You already know yeah. what's going to happen. Hey, if we're getting stuck, I'm eating you for dinner and you for lunch. So just yep. kind of accept it. So, well, <laughs> yeah, meets back on the menu for sure. Before we get to your fun fact, Jess, I hope it's fun. My God, I hope it's fun. We should hear a word from our sponsors. We at 30 Morbid Minutes are so excited to tell you about a podcast from our friends that we think that you, our listeners, will love. I love it. It's called Ship Hits the Fan, and each episode covers high sea horrors and maritime nightmares. Mm-hmm. Ship Hits the Fan is a weekly Wednesday podcast that plunders the depths of history to find the weirdest, scariest, and just plain stupid maritime disasters. Uh-oh, whoopsies. Hosted by Charlotte McGrath, Patrick Brown, and Brian Garr. This podcast is freaking fantastic. Mm-hmm. Listen on your podcast platform of your choice or a day early for first members on roosterteeth.com. So my interesting fact, and I don't know if you would even call it a fact, it's more of just like a uh, a term or a thing that happens. And I, it was more something that I wanted to know more about after some personal experiences in my life that I've been through. One being that my brother used to be a chaplain at a hospital. And boy, did I get many phone calls during his three month time there of him crying on the phone to me letting me know that he loves me and our family because he's literally sitting with those on their deathbed or those that have just found out that they only have a certain amount of time to live. Oh, gosh. Um, Yeah. And so he would he told tons of different stories, um, which I'll get into. And then mixed with um, an old boss that I had that found out he was diagnosed with cancer, uh, stage four cancer, and basically was told that he would not make it. And the way that he changed as a person once he found out that he had cancer. And when I mean changed as a person, he wasn't like depressed. He became such a jovial person. And I watched his experience go through still showing up to work and being so joyful and positive. And I just wanted to better understand, like when somebody finds out that they are going to die or they have some sort of limited amount of time left on this earth. What happens to you and what is that called basically? And how does your mentality change? And so I did some research and um, it's basically that the the term being used here is called the existential slap. So, you know, at some point a person grappling with a life-threatening illness comprehends on a gut level that death is close a realization that in many ways acts as like a psychological trauma, Mm -hmm. basically. 
And so this term existential slap was kind of coined by Nessa Coyle, who's a nurse practitioner and care leader. And she refers to the experience of recognizing one's own mortality as the existential slap. So based on her experiences with patients near death, Coyle said that the realization often precipitates a personal crisis, such as when the doctor discloses news of terminal illness or a person who sees how illness has altered his or her appearance. And this usual habit of allowing thoughts of death to remain in the background is now possible. So like death can no longer be denied. And so when I was reading about this, like I thought about you in a weird way too, like you as, as somebody that loves the morbid, <laughs> um, you, how often do you think about death on the daily? Oh, would you say <laughs> a lot, but not always in a existential slap way. Okay. So, so I did, I wanted to ask you that question specifically because, um, (laughs) these, these people, it's, it is literally like their life is obviously changed. It is like, think of it as like a full on slap across your face of like, we all know we're going to die. And we think about it in terms of like, I have, I have a quote here, um, from Virginia Lee, who's also a nurse explained that while most people intellectually understand that, you know, inevitably death is coming. People in like Western culture on an individual level, we just think that we're going to live forever. We kind of have that weird mentality. Do you know what I mean? No, I know exactly what you're talking about because it's this subconscious feeling of, well, yes, I know death is going to happen, but it's going to happen a long time from now. And I don't need to worry about it. Yes, which is why I wanted to use this fact in in correlation with your story with John. I'm sure like when he went to that cave, you know, no one's thinking I'm going to die today. And, you know, just thinking about our own mortality in that way. And so it's just kind of like when you do find out from a doctor and everything like death is now constantly always in the back of your brain, no matter what, there's no more ego there's just this existential turning point that you have completely changed. And so in with that, I think from stories from, you know, from what my brother has told me some, you know, firsthand stories is a lot of people, they become, you just learn that you just have to let go. Mm-hmm. You know, death is on its way and you start to feel and you kind of have this weird like understanding and feeling of, how do I explain it? Like, is it acceptance? Acceptance, but like also f- this weird feeling of like the other side. Like my brother told me stories of this woman. I don't remember what she was dying of, but she told him quite frequently that she was more in tune mm-hmm. with um, the world, with her soul. She said that she would randomly get visitors from her family. Uh, that have passed, oh. uh, just standing in the corner of the room, you know, but she was still very much alive. Like a she, barrier was broken. Yes. That's the, that is a perfect way to say it. A barrier was broken. And she, um, described to him that like, she just had fam- that they were just kind of like, Hey, we're here. It's not your time yet, but we will be the ones guiding you when the time comes type situation. Wow. And this, this was like weeks before she went, she passed, you know? Yeah. And And like in regards to my boss, when he found out he had cancer, one of the things that the doctors told him was that your mentality going into this is absolutely crucial in the way of like, if you're going to lay in this bed, you know, with, I know there's tons of like 
things on you and, and knobs and machines and everything like that and be in a negative headspace, which I know is so, so hard to combat when you're like, I just got diagnosed with stage four cancer. They say that having a positive attitude and accepting it in in a lot of ways does help. Mm-hmm. And um, for him, for instance, and I know this isn't for everybody, but like watching him firsthand just kind of go through this watching he was just so positive he's like i'm gonna beat it i know that i am and he would he would walk into work every single day give everybody a high five tell everybody that today is going to be a great day and here i am like oh you know my breakfast was cold i don't know and he has cancer and in the end he beat it now i know that i know i know i was like here's some light that i here's some light granted i i know that like it's that doesn't happen for everybody but it was just interesting how when this existential slap happened happens what happens to you you know and i love that this you know nessa coil this nurse practitioner like she's just like this is what it's called and this is how i've experienced it and i call it the existential slap it's it's just really fascinating how your life truly does change from that moment to whenever that time comes that you might pass you know that's so fascinating and i think that the way that you're analyzing it in terms of your mentality affects how you can deal with this slap is really crucial. And I think I had heard that term before, but I think I thought that it was just the, the human consciousness, the, the thinking of that point in your life where you come to terms with death as just an entity that's, I didn't realize that it meant that if you are terminally ill, dealing with that certainty, I think I thought it was just, you know, when you're 10 years old or whatever, and you think about oh, I am actually going to die in that moment of realization. I think that's what I thought it was. Well, you actually bring up a really good point because as I was reading about this, there was a point, maybe this was about like five to seven years ago. I don't know what was going on in my life, but I remember driving down Altorf, a street here in Austin, and I just, I wasn't, there was no alcohol or drugs involved. Just want to make that clear. <laughs> Where all of a sudden, I don't know, what I was thinking about, maybe sometimes I think about like my family dying, specifically my mom, and it like wrecks me just like out Mm -hmm. of the blue, you know? And I remember just thinking about death and my like, felt like my stomach fall. Yeah, Uh, My heart dropped into my stomach. That's what I meant to say. And I legitimately thought about death. I'm like, you are no longer here on this earth anymore. Like this person that you've seen every single day is just just not here. They are completely taken away. You will never see them again. And like, it's so easy to say those words as I'm saying them to you right now. But when you actually think about that and you like take a moment and you breathe and you actually take all the filters off from how you see the world, because we have tons of filters when I'm looking at a lamp or something. You you know what I mean by that? Our brain is designed to try to protect us from ourselves. Yes. Yes, exactly. And so I just like, I had to pull over and I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. And I called my mom. I'm like, death is insane. And she's like, uh, yeah. I'm like, no, but really. And I'm like, I, and then that's when I really came to terms with myself and kind of like what I believe in. I'm like, oh man, I don't know what I believe and I'm still searching. I do now believe that there is a place that we go to because if it's just blackness, I just can't handle that. (laughs) But that, you know, that death is, yeah, it's coming for us all. (laughs) I don't think it's blackness because we had no blackness before. I love that. That made me smile. Yay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think going back to what you said about how none of us mentally prepare for this certainty of death 
hearkening back to our Victorian obsession with death and dying episode. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. did. They had that existential slap, I think. Yes. For all yes. of them, whether oh. they were dying or not, or knew it or not. They kind of seemed oddly, like, not excited about it, but just kind <laughs> of like, oh, I get to prepare now. They, or like, I get to. They approached it very rationally and yeah. with a lot of truth and without sugarcoating anything in mm-hmm. a way that they needed to. I do also find it interesting that Virginia Lee made a point to to kind of say it's it's also a bit of like a um, coming from like cultural backgrounds and how like in Western culture, we do have this kind of feeling of like, oh, we're just going to live forever. And like, mm. whereas, you know, maybe in different cultures, that's that's not what they think. No. You know, like I think about what's going on now in Ukraine mm-hmm. and like. You know, so it's it is weird on a yeah. cultural level as well. There's a reality at your doorstep. There's this book called The Art of Swedish Death Cleaning. And it's the idea. You brought that up yeah, in the, idea, the Victorian. Yep. Yeah. You you prepare for your descendants, for your loved ones. You get your affairs in order for your death. You clean out your home. You organize everything. And I think there's something actually very human about that as opposed to to just ignoring death or not confronting it. Yeah, absolutely. And there was a a small Dutch study found that patients confronted with like diagnosis of incurable esophageal cancer reported quote that their lives seemed to spin out of control, which is like, yeah, when you when you're getting the slap, you know, I feel like for different people it could go in different ways whereas, you know, my old boss was like, "Hey, I'm going to take this and freaking run with it and every day is a good day and others are like oh oh my god i'm about to die wait what do i believe in yeah D- do i become a christian wait hold on a second what is going you know what i mean like that's terrifying it is and it's given me a lot to think about this whole podcast has given me a lot to think about oh for <laughs> it sure continues yeah. to do so i know but for now i think all we can do is look good in our new t-shirts <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, they are so cute. I'm so excited. And I'm so pleased with how they turned out too, Me especially too. the decals. Everybody, like I sent the link to my mom and she's like, I already got a decal. I love them. The skeletons. Yeah. I was going to get my sister some shirts. I have friends that are like, I want a 30 more minutes shirt. And in case you're wondering what we're talking about, we have new t-shirts for 30 morbid minutes, which you can buy right now. Yes, you can buy the merch right now at the uh, RT store, uh, roosterteeth.com slash store. Uh, it's store.roosterteeth.com, I think. Nope, that's it. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have our Curiosity Cabinet shirts, which is our cool logo design. And then we also have our Friends Till the End, Elise and uh, Jess that's, Skeletons. That's my favorite. I love it so much. It's so cute. Um, it is. Yes. Yeah, so in black. I have mine in black. Yes. Uh, Obviously black. Black like our hearts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we've been loving all the comments and questions you've left for us on social media. So please, please hit us up at 30 Morbid Minutes, at Jessica Vasami, at Elise Willems. We want to hear from you. Well, anything, anything else, Jess? I think that this was a fun episode. I liked this little back and forth that we did. It was. I think you definitely out morbided me Uh, not that we're necessarily trying to really stick to that but this this is very much a like whoever wins 
we all lose situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I will never go spelunking though. That is something that uh, I don't ever want to do. And I honestly hope I don't get the existential slap until I'm like in my eighties. So, you know, well, actually, Jess, I was thinking of doing the 30 Morbid Minutes fan meetup in a cave spelunking. No, uh, I'm down to do a meetup, Elise, but just not in a cave spelunking. I don't know if they will be down to do that either. Mm, I don't know. It's what the community wants, Jess. It's what they're Is asking. that what they said? Community, what, come, come out. Let me know. Do you want to have our meetup in a, in a spelunking cave or, I don't know, at a cute coffee shop or drink place? No, I think they're saying spelunking. So, and bring barbecue sauce. Oh my god. No. Why? So they can eat the other one and put some sauce on them? Oh, gotta go. Episode's over. Okay. Okay, bye. <laughs>